Hey everyone, welcome to Dig Deep. Well, it was one of those conversations, and I really hope I'm not the only one who has conversations that go like this, but my husband and I found ourselves enjoying the rare treat of a lunch out in public together, just the two of us. We were out of town on a trip together, and so we were completely kid-free and had the afternoon open before us. We didn't have any obligations to be anywhere for a few hours. It was a beautiful day, so we sat on the patio at this lovely restaurant and enjoyed our lunch outside in the sun. Well, it was during this conversation that my husband brought up a topic, and I realized that this is actually a topic that's related to something that I've wanted to talk with him about for some time. There was a piece of feedback that had come to my mind several times with my husband over the the few months prior but I hadn't found the right time to share it with him. And the chaos of life and with the kids around it, it just never seemed to be the right time. Well, I thought this is clearly the perfect environment. The topic seems to be coming up pretty naturally anyway. We're kid-free. It's a beautiful day. We don't have anywhere to be for a few hours. I think I'm going to go for it and bring up this piece of feedback that I've been wanting to give to my husband for a while now. Well, I had a picture in my mind of how this was going to go, and it was as beautiful as the sunny patio we were sitting on. I thought, I'm going to offer him this feedback, and he would sit back in his chair and say, I am so glad you brought this feedback to me. How did I get so lucky to marry such a wise and insightful woman? And then he'd be so overcome with his gratitude that he would push the table aside and and come over and wrap me in his arms and kiss me and say, thank you, thank you for sharing this with me. What would I do without you? Well, that's not exactly how it ended up going. I said I'd like to talk about something that's actually related to what you just brought up, and and we ventured into the topic. And then I said something that was probably just a little bit too pushy, and then my husband got a little bit defensive, to which I felt the need to become a little bit more pushy, and he became a little bit more defensive. And I got very pushy, and he got very defensive. And the lunch ended very abruptly with my husband taking care of the check, standing up, and marching away from me toward the car. I scrambled to gather my things and followed him. We both got into the car, slammed our car doors, and drove back to the place where we were staying in complete silence. What we had just experienced was a failed, crucial conversation. And I know I've mentioned this book before in this series and before in the podcast, the book Crucial Conversations. We first heard about this book in a sermon that John Ortberg gave, and we immediately went out and got it. And it has been one of the most influential books that I've read in the last year. I cannot recommend it highly enough. And these conversations, Crucial Conversations, the authors of the book define as conversations where opinions differ, emotions run high, and the stakes are high. And so this could be anything from the conversation you know you need to have with your neighbor whose dog keeps pooping on your lawn, or the coworker who repeatedly tells jokes that you find really offensive and you know you need to say something, or the conversation you need to have with your spouse about everything from that habit that really annoys you to something in your life, something in their life that you see that is starting to concern you. These are crucial conversations, conversations where opinions differ, 
emotions run strong, and the stakes are high. And from the time we're small, the authors of the book suggest that we start to believe a lie about communication. We start to believe that we cannot be fully honest and fully respectful, that we cannot be both fully honest and fully respectful. We think there are just some things you can't say to some people. We're afraid that if we say the hard thing that's really honest, we, we might jeopardize the relationship or, or make someone really mad. Or we err on the other side and, and think, I need to preserve this relationship. And so even though I think this is important truth or honest thing that I need to say, I'm, I'm not going to do it for the sake of harmony in the relationship. And so maybe we have harmony and, and people are mostly happy, but the relationship doesn't deepen or ever grow because we're not being fully honest with each other. So the authors say that we believe this lie that we can't be fully honest and fully respectful. The way the Bible, I believe, puts this in Ephesians 4.15 is that we are called to speak the truth in love. And so often I think we believe the lie that we cannot really be fully truthful with each other and fully loving, that some truths are just too hard to deliver in real love, and that if we really love people, how could we possibly talk through a really hard truth with them? And so I'm sure you can probably think of that difficult conversation you need to have with somebody, but you probably feel like you need to choose truth or love. But the Bible, God calls us to both. The authors of the book encourage you as you're, as you're pondering this choice that we often make between truth and love to consider a time when you received from someone some blistering feedback, but when you were able to really receive it and absorb it and apply it to your life. And when the authors asked that question, I immediately thought back to a time when I was in high school and my younger brother, Eric, knocked on my bedroom door one evening and said very formally, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure, come on in. And he proceeded to give me some of the most difficult, tough feedback I had been given. He had noticed something in my life, a habit, a pattern that he was concerned about. And he talked with me about it very openly. He was gentle and calm, and he shared some things from scripture. He shared some things from his personal experience. And then he asked how I felt about what I had shared with him. And there was something about the experience that made it so that I was totally disarmed by what he had said and realized, yeah, this is an area where I really have a lot of work to do. We talked about it together and then prayed together and then he left. And I always think back to that about a time when I really learned what it's like to give feedback in a way that is healthy and helpful. And so, of course, that story came to mind immediately when the authors asked, think of a time when you received tough feedback, but you were able to receive it and absorb it. And then they asked this question, why? Why, compared to all the other times when you've been given a piece of, of tough feedback from somebody, why was that a time when you were able to really accept it and absorb it and not immediately jump to being defensive? And they suggest that one of the key reasons was that you believed that the other person had your best interest in mind. 
And I realized that that was absolutely true in that situation. I believed that my brother really had my best interest in mind. He wasn't there just to correct me or just to place himself in some sort of position of superiority over me because he had dirt on me or he knew that there was something I needed to change and he was going to be the one to point it out. He was humble and I believed that more than anything, he had my best interests at heart. Proverbs 27, 6 says, wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. And that's so true. Wounds from a sincere friend, a sincere friend who really cares and has your best interests at heart are far better than all the compliments and flattery from someone who doesn't care from an enemy. What the authors of Crucial Conversations state, and I love this quote from the book, I say, we're suggesting that people rarely become defensive simply because of what you are saying. They only become defensive when they no longer feel safe. The problem is not the content of your message, but the condition of the conversation. And that is so true as I reflect on times when I've received feedback. In that situation with my brother, I felt safe. I believed that he had my best interests at heart. And so that same piece of feedback could have been delivered completely differently, but I would not have felt safe. And I could totally have seen myself becoming defensive and angry and starting a fight, as I'm so unfortunately very good at doing. The problem is that when conversations turn sour, it usually has very little to do with the actual content of the message we are trying to give. It's more often about the conditions of the conversation. And the authors of the book use this language, you just heard it in that last quote, that we need to make it safe. And when I first heard this language that they use in the book about making conversations safe, I thought it was a little hippie-ish, honestly. I thought, okay, we want our conversations to be safe. Oh, isn't that so nice? Like, what nice language? What does that even mean? Well, the authors make this claim. This is a pretty remarkable claim. If you can make the environment safe enough, you can talk about almost anything and people will listen. If you don't fear that you yourself are being attacked or humiliated, you can hear almost anything and not become defensive. And they say, we know this is a bold claim, but it's not about the content of the message, no matter how sensitive, no matter how difficult. If you can create a safe environment, you can give or receive any message, no matter how difficult. Well, the problem, of course, that takes place in a lot of our conversations, including my conversation on the sunny patio with my husband, is that something happens early in a conversation and we don't feel safe. We feel violated. We feel under attack, even in just the smallest of ways. And so we resort to one of two major themes of behavior. And this lines right up with what we talked about week one, where when we feel like we are under attack, even a little bit, Our adrenaline starts pumping, our palms start sweating, our heart beats fast, we feel the blood rush to our face, and we know we are about to either experience a surge of fight or we are going to take flight. And that fight or flight response, as they outline it in the book, usually demonstrates itself in our conversations through either silence or violence. 
And they suggest that most people fall into one of the two categories most of the time. But all of us will demonstrate all of these behaviors over the course of our lifetime. We will demonstrate both silence and violence, but most of us tend toward one or the other. And even without me describing them, you might be able to guess which category you fall into. But just to give you some extra context, silence would include things like, of course, withdrawing, physically leaving, stomping out of the room because you're just so done with a person or a conversation. But it can also be things like masking what you really mean. When somebody's trying to deliver a message to you that might be difficult, you could roll your eyes and say something sarcastic like, oh yeah, that sounds like a really great idea. And that's you dismissing it. It's you withdrawing from the conversation in a different way. You are speaking, but you're withdrawing. You are demonstrating silence. Or it could be anything like avoiding, just steering away from the subject, trying to change the subject. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with someone who is really hard to pin down on on a tough topic. It seems like they're always changing the subject, even just slightly, and it's hard for you to stay on course, especially when it comes with comes to tough conversations. It's a form of silence. It's a form of avoidance or withdrawal. And then, of course, there's violence. And I knew right away reading the book that this is much more my style. I lean toward the fight side of things when my adrenaline gets pumping. And this can include a variety of things, too. It's not just screaming and yelling like you might picture violent communication. It's things like using hyperbole in in a conversation, saying things like, well, everybody knows, blah, 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 trying to emphasize your point by trying to get all of humanity on your side by saying something silly like everybody knows. Or it can be things like labeling, pushing people into categories, saying, well, that's some, that's just what a typical man would say. Or, well, you would know if you were a good blank. And by categorizing people, we, we start to control the conversation and and hurt the people around us in conversation. Or we could just straight up attack people, and that's belittling or insulting or um, threatening punishment through our conversation. And there's so many different facets of these, but ultimately we fall into one of the two categories. And, And we'll post a link for a resource that you can go on and find which of these are your personal tendency in conversation. So it can give you some handles of how you can how you can grow and develop in these areas. That that link so that you have it is crucialconversations.com forward slash S-U-S. Your style under stress is what that stands for. Forward slash, forward slash S-U-S. And we'll put that in the show notes. But one of the things that the authors c- encourage us to do is to start stepping back and viewing these things in our conversations, these symptoms of silence and violence, and recoding them as cues that the person we're talking to no longer feels safe in the conversation. And I know that that's, it's a strange concept to start to absorb, but if you think about how quickly we can become defensive, our defensiveness usually takes one of these two forms, and we only become defensive because we don't feel safe. And remember, the authors argue that if you make an environment safe enough, you can talk about any content, and it'll still be a productive, healthy conversation. It's when the environment is no longer safe that we start to make mistakes 
in conversation. So we need to learn to recode those things and instead of letting them escalate, realizing they are signs that someone no longer feels safe. And this alone has been hugely helpful to our relationship. Going back to the story of us sitting on the sunny patio and getting into this tough conversation, what I didn't mention before is that on this trip, we had just started reading the book Crucial Conversations, and we had just finished the chapters on how to make conversations safe and patterns of silence and violence. And we spent the first part of our lunch very pleasantly talking about what we were learning. We talked about how we can make conversations safe and our own personal tendencies. And I, of course, quickly acknowledged, yes, I know I tend toward violence, to which my husband nodded emphatically. He knows that better than anyone. And he said he really believes that while he does both, he definitely leans towards silence. And I confirmed that I think that is true. We have had so many arguments that end with me pushing way too hard, raising my voice, and him eventually walking out of the room and withdrawing from the conversation completely. So we were literally just talking about these topics and how to have healthy conversation. And only a few topics later, in, during the same lunch, was when I thought, man, we are learning so much and this is just the perfect environment. I'm going to step out and apply these things that I've learned and share this feedback with my husband in a safe, wonderful way. And obviously, I failed miserably. I started to push too hard. My husband clearly did not feel safe, and so he started to be defensive and use silence techniques. I used more violence techniques. He used more silence back and forth until the major silence of stomping away, slamming car doors, and driving back in complete silence ended the conversation. Well, I am happy to say that when we got to the place where we were staying, we sat in silence for a few more minutes in the car. And then my husband, as patient and wonderful as he is, had stepped back and decided to step back into the conversation and apply what he had learned. And he looked at me and said, I value your feedback very highly. I need your voice in my life. But I need for us to take a step back and figure out how we can have this conversation in a way that is more safe. Because I can tell that you, that I, Jess, didn't feel safe. He said he could tell that I didn't feel safe. And it's interesting because he was the one receiving the feedback, but I was the one who got so heated so quickly. And he was right that when he didn't immediately receive my feedback and thank me and express his gratitude, when he was just a little bit defensive, I became very defensive because I wanted to know that he did value my feedback. I felt like he wasn't hearing me or that it didn't matter. And this thing that I was sharing with him was very, very important to me. So he acknowledged that I didn't feel safe and that we should take a step back and move forward in a way that we can both feel safe. And he was absolutely right. And a few days later, when we were able to re-engage on the topic, it was still a difficult conversation, but we navigated it very carefully, and a lot of good came out of it in our lives individually and in our relationship. And the feedback was absorbed and is helping us as we move forward. 
And so we need to recode cues of silence and violence as signs that someone doesn't feel safe in conversation. And an argument you may have is, why would we do this? Why would we have to do this? If someone is behaving poorly in conversation, if they are being immature and stomping out of the room like a child, or if they are getting way too heated and controlling and pushing their opinion around, why would we have to deal with that? And why should we be the ones to have to step back and make it a safe place for them? And the answer is because we want to dig deep and lay our lives on the foundation of Christ. And we are told how to do that in this particular way in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. View the person you're talking to as more significant than yourself. This is difficult to do. This is where we can transition from being conversationalists who burn bridges and hurt feelings and feel like we always have to make the choice between truth or love, but we can't have both. This is where we can become experts and navigate conversations well, even difficult conversations. Because when we disagree with someone, when we have differing opinions with someone, it is so easy for us to just start viewing them as kind of a bad person, an enemy. You know, they're clearly in the wrong. We feel it's our duty as the hero in the scenario to correct them or fix them for their sake and for the sake of the world. And we get all too wrapped up in ourselves, in our own interests, what we want, that we lose sight of their interests. And so one of the ways that we can do this, one of the tools that the authors of Crucial Conversations give us to put in our tool belt a way that we can make our conversations safe, especially those tough conversations, that one that came to mind that you know you need to have with your neighbor or your spouse or a family member, that tough topic that you need to breach with them. A key way to do that is to find mutual purpose. And if you think back to a time when you received tough feedback and you were able to absorb it, like the experience I had with my brother, the key ingredient was that you believed that they had your best interest at heart. And if we really believe that someone has our best interest at heart, we can hear what they have to say. But the minute that we start believing that they might have a malicious intent or that they just want to fix us or change us, or, or that all they care about is their own opinion, and that they kind of want to force it on us, it will cause conflict because we automatically will want to defend ourselves from somebody that we perceive as an enemy. And so for us, when we venture into those conversations with people, we need to find mutual purpose, find a shared goal 
that can help you create a healthy climate for conversation. And this has to be genuine. This is not a trick that we can try to implement. Mutual purpose has to be real. We have to actually care. And so some questions that you can ask yourself, and this goes back to the question we asked week one of what do I really want, is to expand it even further. And before you go into that conversation, or even in the midst of that conversation, to ask yourself, what do I want for me? What do I want for them? And what do I want for the relationship? Because it's so easy to stop at the first question. What do I want for me? I want this person to change this habit because it's having a negative impact on my life. They're offending me or ruining my yard or they are hurting me with this habit that they, is in their life that really concerns me. But we can't stop with the question, what do I want for me? We have to ask the question, what do I want for them? And then what do I want for the relationship? We can't just look out for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. The authors of the book share a story that I think is the perfect example of this, Finding Mutual Purpose, where they talk about two groups of people, union heads and the managers in an industry where a strike had just taken place. And the union had just come back to work after a long strike, but the it was a very hostile environment still. And the authors of Crucial Conversations, it's four different authors, they all serve as consultants for groups just like this. And so this group hired them to come in to help them navigate this incredibly tough, crucial conversation. Opinions were very different, emotions were running very high, and the stakes were really high for this business and for the industry. And so the consultants came in and they took these two different groups of people. They had the managers and then they had the union heads. And they sent them into two separate rooms. But before they sent them out, they said, we want you to go into these separate rooms and we have a giant notepad for you to write on. And we want you to take two hours and consider your top priorities, your deepest values, your deepest goals for this industry and for this business. And we want you to dialogue about them, boil them down to the core values that you have, the things that you want to see achieved, and then we'll come back together after two hours. And so they sent them into their respective rooms and had them brainstorm what really their co- their core goals, their core values were as individual groups. Well, they brought them together after two hours and said, okay, we are going to ask you to do something in a minute that might be kind of difficult. We are going to ask each group to go into the other group's room and look at their lists. And we want you to not go in with an aggressive mindset looking to have a fight. We want you to just see if you can find just a scrap, just a morsel of common ground, of mutual purpose? Is there anything that you have in common that you both want? And that will be our starting place for conversation. So try to be open-minded and go in and just see if you can find just the tiniest thread of common ground of mutual purpose. Well, the groups went in trying to be open-minded and they did not find just a scrap or a thread of mutual purpose or common ground they found that their lists were virtually identical to each other. And so when they came back together, their heads all hanging a little bit, 
the researchers, the authors of Crucial Conversations, began to talk them through the value of mutual purpose. And they found that they had way more in common than they had in opposing views. They needed to learn how to communicate, but at the end of the day, they both wanted the same thing. And in so many of these conversations, that's the same is true for us too. We want good things for ourselves. We want good things for others. And we want good things for our relationships. But if we don't step back and establish those things, we will miss it. But it is possible for us to speak the truth in love to each other if we look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And in doing so, by asking the question, what do I want? What do they want? And what do I want for the relationship? We can find common ground. So your try it today is to consider, consider a crucial conversation, either one that you know you need to have with someone or one that maybe you are sort of in the midst of already, a a recurring fight that you're having with a family member or a spouse or just a tiff that you're in with a coworker. Consider how you can implement these principles today. Write the situation down, write down some brief things about it, and then write down the questions, what do I want for me? What do I want for them? What do I want for the relationship? And as you answer those questions, take that knowledge, that mutual purpose that you find into the conversation as you share tough truth in love, having the other person's best interests in mind. In Ephesians 4, when we are called to speak the truth in love, we are then later in the chapter given this picture of a body and reminded that we're called to do this because we are all connected to one another. And it's our relationships that connect us. And at the core of all of these relationships is our communication with one another. And when communication goes poorly, when we fail at this, we damage our relationships. And and in so doing, we damage our families, we damage our careers, we damage the church, we damage the very thing that connects us to each other and gives us so much joy and satisfaction in life, something that God has designed us for, created us for. And later on in Ephesians 4, verse 25 says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We are connected, so we are called to speak the truth. And then in verse 32, we're also called to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. It is possible to speak the truth in love to one another, and not just portions of truth and portions of love, but the full truth in full love. And when we practice this, when we learn to do this, we make our relationships stronger. We make our family stronger. We increase our influence in our communities and in our schools and in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods. And the relationships that connect us grow and deepen 
and our lives are made better for it, and God is glorified by it. So this week, let's dig deep. Ask yourself those questions about a conversation you need to have. What do I want for me? What do I want for them? What do I want for the relationship? Ask God to help you find mutual purpose and then navigate that conversation in a way that makes the other person feel fully safe, knowing you have their best interests at heart. Thanks so much for being here today. We hope you'll join us again next week as we conclude this series, Taming the Beast. Again, you can find discussion questions for this week's episode at jessalston.com under the listen page in the show notes. There's a link to the PDF for you to discuss with your small group or your spouse or just for you to reflect on your own time alone with God. So thanks so much for being here. We'll see you next week.